Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun in the process. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with the biggest drug news stories from the last week and a few important things to look forward to. Then, we'll be talking about the science of psilocybin in the second installment of October's Drug of the Month. Then next up, we'll be talking with Rebecca Nieves-McGoldrick and Jared Moffat, two reformers in Rhode Island about drug policy in the ocean state. And of course, we'll each be giving you some calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if we're not using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So thanks a lot for joining us for episode 14 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we talk about the top news items in drug policy from the past week, and also tell you what else to look for coming up in the next few weeks, whether that's some cool conferences, bill hearings, or other events. So Sam, what's our first news item for this week? All right, so this is another one from my home city of Boston. So last week, the MBTA, which is the government entity that runs Boston subways and buses, announced that it was considering lifting its ban on alcohol advertisements in order to generate more revenue. They banned alcohol ads back in 2012, but are now seeking to dramatically increase ad revenues in order to fund the agency as its costs outstrip its income. The chief administrator of the MBTA, whose name is Brian Shortsleeve, uh, claims that about half of transit agencies across the country allow alcohol ads, and that doing so in Boston would bring the city an additional $1.3 million next year. However, After floating this trial balloon, the MBTA has received a lot of blowback, including from Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, who proposed the original ban when he was a state representative. And Walsh is actually an openly uh, recovering alcoholic and a big 12-stepper, and so he's pushed hard for restrictions on all sorts of drugs, whether that's alcohol, uh, tobacco, and unfortunately even medical marijuana. Well, so this is an interesting move. I understand, you know, government agencies trying to fill in those uh, budgeting holes without having to raise taxes on tax uh, on taxpayers, obviously. But did did they give any context for how much of that budget gap the ad revenue would the additional ad revenue would provide? Yeah, so it still would only be a drop in the bo- bucket. It's kind of part of this comprehensive overhaul that they're hoping to do, including adding a lot more a lot more ad space, including like television screens and that sort of thing in the MBTA. And so this is just one policy among many, but they did say it would bring in uh, 1.3 million next year. And for a little bit of context, uh, after they banned them in 2012, they said that they lost uh, about a million dollars in ad revenue. And, uh, but actually the overall ad revenues have dramatically increased over that time because they've been really pushing for uh, uh, varying their sources. Uh, but so, this one will just be one small thing among it, but it is a, a pretty significant amount. Uh, but I'd actually written a blog post about this, just kind of calling out the hypocrisy of it, because while the MBTA might be allowing for alcohol ads, they actually still ban uh, any kind of advertising for medical marijuana, and actually even rejected ads for the Northeast Institute of Cannabis, which is a school that educates people that want to work in the medical marijuana industry, so it wasn't even advertising you know, medical marijuana itself, but just a school that would teach people the, the skills to work in the industry. Right. I'm always kind of skeptical whenever the government gets involved with, you know, any of these substance industries, like whether it's, you know, selling, being the main provider of alcohol in a state um, or benefiting from ad revenues from like pharmaceuticals and alcohol and things like that. Um, I kind of wonder, I don't know if anyone's done this calculus, but I wonder what kind of like public health costs uh, may be increased if there were increased alcohol consumption due to these ads. Um. Yeah, I have seen a few studies that it does increase alcohol consumption, especially among youth. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the one big thing that kept being brought up uh, with the original ban, too, was that 
you know, kids in the city are taking the subway to school, mm-hmm. but then kids, you know, in the suburbs and the more wealthier areas are taking the yellow school bus and they're not being subjected to these ads. So it's also kind of leading to some discrepancies there. Yeah, absolutely. And we can see this play out um, in neighborhoods of concentrations of liquor stores, too. So in our next news item, um, this is some actually really wonderful news. The Justice Department is set to release about 6,000 nonviolent inmates from federal prison later this month between October 30th and November 2nd. Um, So this is all part of an effort to reduce overcrowding in prisons, but more importantly, it's um, in order to provide relief to nonviolent drug offenders who received disproportionately harsh sentences over the last three decades. Um, And this action is caused, so we've previously talked about President Obama using his executive order powers to commute sentences, and he had, um, through that action, released about 89 prisoners or approved about 89 prisoners for release. But this is a completely different mechanism. So this action is based on a decision by the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which is an independent agency that sets federal sentencing guidelines to reduce potential punishment time for drug offenders um, overall. And um, in July this year, they made that change retroactive, meaning it applies to people who are already in prison as well, in addition to people going forwards. Yeah, so I was actually seeing a bunch of articles about this. I mean, I think that there's something like 60 or 70 folks that are going to be going back to my home state of Connecticut. And there's also a substantial numbers of these that are people that weren't even Americans, right, that were uh, that were in prison for drug crimes while they were here. Yeah, so about a third of those released are foreign nationals. So they'll be deported back to their home countries as soon as they're released. Or hopefully they'll be deported back to their home countries because I have read some horror stories where people were deported to the wrong place. Um, oh, wow. Not in this situation in particular, I just mean like mm-hmm. um, as, as, as a general, general matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, wow. So that means about two thirds of the remaining um, inmates are, are domestic cases, they're, they're American citizens. And so they'll be going to halfway houses in their respective states, home states, before being put on supervised release. Um, so, the way, so the way this sentencing change uh, works is that um, for federal, the federal guidelines for fe- sentencing have like certain number of points for aggravating factors, and um, and each additional point means like a certain number of years more that you you get sentenced to prison, and so what the change did was um, about about cut in half the number of points that each aggravating ca- factor accounted for, but overall this actually only reduced sentences by, by about two years on average. So I was kind of surprised to read that 6,000 inmates are being released early, but it's like all of these 6,000 inmates would have been released in about two years anyway. So I don't know that it's really that just drastic of a cut. Um, so does this also mean, though, that it's uh, kind of proactively shortening the sentences of a lot of people that are still in prison? And so maybe there's people who are now only going to serve, you know, three more years when they were planned to serve uh, five or six or something like two, that? Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So this is actually a lot more comprehensive than just these 6,000. Right, absolutely. And so the commission actually estimates that its new guidelines can mean that up to 46,000 of the nation's 100,000 drug offenders, so about 46% of all drug, uh, federal drug offenders, uh, qualify for early release now. Wow, that's fantastic. But un- unfortunately, shifting for our next story is uh, not good news at all. Uh, it's quite the tragedy. So... Some students at an Ohio high school are placing the blame for the suicide of one of their classmates, whose name is Hayden Long, on school administrators who told him that he'd, quote, ruined his life for smelling like marijuana. And so in an open letter, the students describe a run-in with school officials after a homecoming dance where they are accused of smelling like marijuana by the administrators. And Hayden and five friends, all honor students, were taken to a room where they are questioned and berated without their parents present or even being informed that this was happening. And so this open letter claims that the students were told that they had ruined their lives, they would fail all their classes, and that they had made the, the worst mistake of their entire lives. And their vehicles were forcibly searched, and despite no evidence other than the smell, they didn't find anything in their vehicles or on their persons. They were sp- suspended for 10 days, and shortly afterwards, Hayden took his own life. So one of the other students' fathers has joined the uh, five surviving students in blaming the school's administrators, uh, though it is also important to note that Hayden's parents have not done so themselves and are uh, not really getting involved in this issue. Yeah, so um, 
Yeah, I think you mentioned this previously, but I just wanted to highlight, like, I can't believe, like, all of them were honor students. It's not like they were trouble, trouble, like, troublemakers or known um, at-risk students um, who had any reason to believe that their lives were ruined, you know, simply because this incident happened. I just, like, this is such a tragedy of the drug war and the war on students um, when when students could be accused of something with like very little evidence that the accusations were uh, based in reality and no evidence of any criminal activity were found on them and for for them to be told so harshly you know I mean you're just at such a um, like sensitive time in your life where you're just learning how to you know be a person in the world and at that point to be already told that you have no chance for success, even though you're an honor student. Um. Exactly. And with honor students, I mean, there's always so much pressure that, you know, academia is your primary focus. They're building that up as really the most important thing in your life. And so if they then, you know, tell you that you've completely thrown it all away. And we don't even know if this kid actually was even using Right, absolutely. Since there's no evidence. It's, it's even highly possible that he wasn't, but then was being... Uh, punished for something that he didn't do and having his whole life thrown away. Right, for and that, it, which that is... helplessness of not being able to, to show your school administrators. I mean, if they won't believe you and all they're, all they're focused on is accusing you of how, how bad of a person you are. I mean, this, this actually reminds me of another story, not to digress too much from this news item, but uh, of another story of an elementary school kid um, in Virginia a couple months ago, um, I think earlier this spring, who had a, quote, marijuana-shaped leaf found in his bag that was actually the leaf of a Japanese maple tree, which if you guys want to Google that, it does look kind of like pot leaf-like. But they found this leaf in his bag and suspended him for, um, for like, like a fake drug, like for having like, plac- like, like, I don't know what the, I can't remember. When the, the leaf legal- isn't even the part of the, dr- of the plant that you use as a drug. Yeah, I, I know. Um, and this was like, crazy. this was a kid who was like also like had a perfectly clean record, was like an advanced student, you know, and this kid was like traumatized, uh, like by school for life because, uh, because of his suspension. And he was like, had no idea what he had done wrong. Like having a leaf in his bag, like that, uh, it, just this drug war hysteria of administrators, like zero, it's even beyond zero tolerance. It's like negative tolerance right. of how much that they're punishing people. It's false accusations. I mean, it's just um, another example of how po- prohibition is so much more damaging than the drugs themselves. Like, even if this kid, like, like, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt to the administrators, which they don't deserve, but like, even if these kids were smoking marijuana, like, like experimenting for the first time in their lives or whatever, like that would have been a lot, a lot less damaging to these students than like what actually happened to them. Um, so I guess moving on to a happier story, <laughs> just to wrap things up. So a new study found that uh, what we know as runner's high may actually be similar to the high caused by marijuana. So ever since the 80s, it's been considered common knowledge that runner's high AKA that happy kind of, uh, that happy feeling you get after a good workout or halfway through your run where it doesn't seem as hard anymore and you're kind of floating through the rest of your run has been caused by endorphins. Um, This is such common knowledge that it's even reflected in pop culture, like in Legally Blonde. Um, I wanna say there's like the pivotal scene where she wins her court case. You know, she, she says, exercise gives you endorphins. Endorphins make you happy. Happy people just don't shoot their husbands. Right. Like that's so ingrained in our idea of what um, exercise does and why it makes you so happy. But a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, which is one of the most prestigious and most cited academic journals in the world, found that the chemicals causing the runner's high, which um, does help reduce pain, boost energy and even causes a feeling of euphoria, may be caused by the endocannabinoid system, not endorphins. And for those not familiar, the endocannabinoid system is part of the human body, um, which has the receptors that interact with cannabinoids from marijuana. So when you smoke or consume marijuana, it releases all of its cannabinoids, the most commonly known one being THC, into your body. And then CB1, CB2 receptors from the endocannabinoid system um, you know, receive those, endo- those cannabinoids from marijuana. But the human body actually produces its own cannabinoids naturally called endocannabinoids. 
And so scientists tested this theory out on mice by making them run um, in their little wheels and uh, measured you know, the positive effects of, of running on the mice. And then they, did, they, den- they then did experiments where they both blocked, for one set of mice, they blocked their um, cannabinoid receptors. And for the other mice, they blocked their endorphin receptors. And for those mice who no longer could receive their own endocannabinoids from running, they, they were just as anxious and like sad and depressed <laughs> as before they started their run. And for the mice who had their endorphin receptors blocked, um, they were like a lot happier and felt less stressed and um, had less pain than, um, than the other mice. So they don't think that blocking endorphins really have an effect on runner's high at all. Interesting. So, I mean, what this says to me is just that we need to ban running, right? <laughs> yeah, because you but... don't want to, you don't, you don't want those dangerous, uh, euphoric feelings in people. Yeah, you know, you, all those natural cannabinoids in your system are just going to turn you into a lazy do-nothing, yeah. especially. Uh... <laughs> but, I mean, this is so crazy that the endocannabinoid system is still such a, a kind of new field of research. It is really interesting to see that I mean, I've also heard about things of, you know, endocannabinoid deficiencies, and that might have something to do with different people's uh, different proclivities for whether they enjoy marijuana or Mm -hmm. not, and that it might have something to do with a lot of the medical effects. So it's really cool to see a lot more research being done on this, and I really hope that it expands a lot more as more states legalize. Yeah, I think a lot of scientists have, like, initially were skeptical to study the endocannabinoid system when it was first discovered, because people are so blown away that there is a system in our body that literally was made to receive cannabinoids like that outside of the human body are really primarily produced by this drug. So it's like we have a system in our body that's mainly made to receive cannabinoids from marijuana or from our that we self-produce. But um, I'm glad I'm glad they're doing further research on this. Scientists have actually been searching for a while to an alternate explanation for runner's high because endorphin molecules are actually too big to fit through the brain blood barrier. So like scientists have known for a while that endorphins probably weren't the cause of runner high, runner's high, but uh, now, they, now they're looking into endocannabinoids being the cause. Very cool. Definitely looking forward to more research on this. And so now moving over into our weekly forecast. Uh, so this coming Tuesday night is the first debate for the Democratic primary. Uh, so it's going to be in Las Vegas at 6 p.m. Pacific time, so 9 p.m. for those of us on the East Coast. And the five participants are going to be Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Martin O'Malley, Lincoln Chafee, and Jim Webb. Uh, Lawrence Lessig was not invited because he didn't have enough support in the polls, even though he wasn't on a lot of the polls. Uh, (laughs) And Joe Biden, though rumored to be planning to run, has not yet declared, so he won't be on the stage either. But with reformers like Sanders and Webb participating... Uh, and Martin O'Malley, and, and Martin O'Malley, who's now trying to boost his criminal justice and drug policy record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despite being responsible for a lot of terrible policies back in his day. Yeah, right? we don't forget that easily, Marty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, even with his that video of like fear and loathing. Yeah, to our uh, listeners, go Google remake, fear and loathing with Martin O'Malley. It's pretty hilarious. Mm-hmm. Re- yeah, it's ridiculous. I wish Bernie Sanders would be a bit more appropriate in that kind of <laughs> setting, but. <laughs> But with reformers like that on stage, I think criminal justice and drug policy are really likely to come up. Uh, so it's be, it'll be really interesting to see what all the candidates have to say. And we hope that they do address, uh, address drugs head on uh, rather than just criminal justice more broadly. Uh, so maybe touching on topics like states legalizing marijuana for adult use and how they uh, treat that and treating the overdose epidemic like a public health issue instead of a criminal justice one. So be sure to tune in Tuesday night. It's on CNN. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's going to come up, Sam, since it, since they even talked about it during the Republican debate. And this is a, an issue which historically the Democrats have been a little more comfortable with, even though they haven't been great in the past either. So for my forecast, um, it's a little closer to home. As some of you may know, the applications for cannabis business licenses in Maryland were released earlier this month. And this has forced a lot of counties and jurisdictions in Maryland, which haven't really grappled with the policy repercussions of legal medical marijuana in their state um, up to this point, to now have to consider how they're going to approach having medical marijuana patients and businesses uh, amongst their constituents. 
So in Anne Arundel County, where the state capital Annapolis is located, the county executive wants to ban all medical marijuana businesses. Um, the law isn't clear on whether this is allowed or not, and he's actually facing a lot of uh, he's a lot he's facing a lot of pushback, not just amongst his constituents, but amongst state legislators who say that if they go through with this, um, they're going to clarify the state law to say that counties aren't allowed. And um, but within Anne Arundel itself, three council members have um, put forward a counter proposal offering instead more sensible zoning limitations. So just saying like where businesses can be placed instead of saying no businesses at all. So there's going to be a hearing on both bills a week from tomorrow, Monday, October 19th at 7 p.m. at the Arundel Center, which is at 44 Calvert Street, Annapolis. So if you're in the area, whether you live in Anne Arundel County or not, this uh, could set a dangerous precedent for what else happens in the state. So I highly encourage you, please, to join us and testify in support of safe legal access to medicine for all patients. All right, awesome. So that's been our weekly news and forecast. Hope you enjoyed it. And while we're always following drug news, there is a ridiculous amount of it out there with all of the progress and uh, reforms that are happening. So please let us know if you see anything that you'd like us to cover. So you can send us news stories or uh, heads up about events that are coming up uh, by email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or on social media. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, speaking of social media, we would really love it if you would like us on Facebook. We actually just passed 600 fans and would really love to hit 1,000 by the end of the month. So just go over to Flash This Week in Drugs and uh, like us there. Now it's time for our drug of the month, where we bring you the background, science, history, and current trends in a different drug every month. For October, we're focusing on psilocybin, the psychoactive component of magic mushrooms. Last week we gave you an introduction, and now it's time to dive into the science of how psilocybin interacts with the human body, its positive and medically useful effects, and some of its potential side effects. As we mentioned in the introduction, psilocybin is found naturally in an over 200 species of mushroom, so people using them recreationally simply eat the mushroom, sometimes fresh but more often dried out. A typical recreational dose is between 10 and 50 milligrams of psilocybin, which is roughly equivalent to 10 to 50 grams of fresh mushrooms or 1 to 5 grams of dried mushrooms. Unfortunately, these rough approximations are inherent in this drug as different mushrooms contain various concentrations of psilocybin. Without rigorous scientific testing like there would be in a legal regulated market, users are taking a little bit of a gamble as to how potent the mushrooms they are ingesting are going to be. This is further complicated by the fact that other factors, such as size and age of the mushroom, and how long it has been stored if it's dry, can also affect the potency. No matter how much psilocybin you ingest, it is processed by your body the same way. What many people don't know is that psilocybin is actually a pro-drug, meaning it is not itself psychoactive, but is metabolized into the pharmacologically active drug, which in this case is psilocin. However, many mushrooms also do contain psilocin in addition to psilocybin in various combinations. Once mushrooms are ingested, your liver rapidly processes the psilocybin into psilocin, which enters your bloodstream and causes magic mushrooms' characteristic effects. Because they're all connected and this isn't a scientific research paper, I'll be using psilocybin and psilocin, as well as mushrooms or magic mushrooms, somewhat interchangeably here. Psilocin is structured similarly to serotonin and affects many of the same systems in your body. It is a partial agonist for many serotonergic receptors, meaning it activates them in a very similar way. The main receptors that it connects to are called 5-HT, with a few different types within that family. The 5-HT receptors are responsible for the bulk of psilocin's effects, but recent research has shown that it affects other receptors to a lesser extent. Part of this reaction is increasing dopamine and the basal ganglia, which is a part of your brain that's partly responsible for cognition and emotion. This increase in dopamine rewards the pleasure centers, which lends to psilocybin's euphoric effects. When in your bloodstream, psilocin has a variety of effects based on the quantity present. At low doses, mushrooms produce feelings of relaxation, and many users report laughing a lot and finding things more entertaining than they normally would, not unlike the effects of marijuana. Seeking this more mild effects leads some people to microdose, meaning purposefully taking smaller amounts of mushrooms than would normally be used to obtain its more commonly known psychedelic effects that are characteristics of a much larger dose. 
At higher doses, psilocybin resembles LSD much more than it does marijuana, doing things like intensifying colors and textures, producing visual hallucinations, and distorting your sense of time. Many people also find it to be a spiritually significant experience, but that depends a lot on set and setting. Someone taking it in a ritualistic manner and hoping to connect with themselves, others, or the world will be much more likely to find it to be spiritual than someone taking it in a more recreational setting like a party or a concert. Now, a mushroom trip tends to last between four to five hours, which is shorter than the the duration of a typical acid trip. It does build up a tolerance, but this dissipates quickly in a matter of days, so spacing out psilocybin use will avoid this issue, and is generally a good idea for a number of reasons that I'll get into shortly. Interestingly, psilocybin is similar to LSD not just in its effects, but in the way it interacts with your body. They're so similar that you can actually develop a cross-tolerance, meaning if you take LSD the day after you take psilocybin, you'll have a weaker effects from it, as if you had just previously done LSD. Just as the tolerance disappears quickly, psilocin actually clears your body pretty quickly, and most of it is excreted within 24 hours of consumption. However, it's possible to detect in urine up to 7 days after use, which is longer than a drug like, say, cocaine, but much shorter than marijuana. Mushrooms also do not lead to physical dependence, so they have very little addictive potential. On the medical side of things, there have been ebbs and flows in the acceptance of psilocybin's potential. Back in the 1960s, psychedelic icons Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert ran the Harvard Psilocybin Project, in which they carried out a number of experiments to evaluate its uses in treatment or to assist with counseling. This type of work was squelched during the anti-drug hysteria of the 70s and 80s, but since the turn of the century, there's been a renewed push for scientific research into the benefits of psilocybin for various conditions. Beginning in 2000, John Hopkins University launched a series of studies into psilocybin and other hallucinogens. Their work has shown that along with guided therapy, psilocybin can help people quit smoking, can help treat alcoholism, and even help with depression and end-of-life anxiety. In one such study, after all 18 subjects experienced a guided mushroom trip, 94% said their trip was one of the most important experiences of their lives, and 39% even said it was the most important thing that had ever happened to them. Participants' friends and family reported that they were more empathetic, their relationships and marriages had improved, and that their alcohol consumption had lessened. One of our favorite organizations that we've often mentioned on This Week in Drugs and even brought on some of its members as guests is called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, and they've been heavily involved in this research and are even conducting studies themselves in the U.S. and abroad. Of course, as with any drug, there are certainly risks associated with magic mushrooms. The biggest danger with consuming them in an unregulated environment is misidentification. Since there's over 200 species of psilocybin mushrooms, it's possible for people looking for them to mistake a non-psychoactive or even poisonous mushroom and consume that instead. Some wild mushrooms can cause stomach pain, vomiting, diarrhea, and even death. But when consuming whole, actual psilocybin mushrooms, it is also somewhat common for users to vomit, with about 25% reporting throwing up after consumption. However, this is much more due to the mushrooms themselves and isn't an effect inherent to psilocybin, and it may also just be linked to the disgusting taste of these mushrooms, which users often try to avoid by either swallowing them whole in capsules or combining them with more appetizing foods such as chocolate. Psilocybin itself, like other psychedelics, can lead to challenging trips, which can include confusion, anxiety, and panic, and are more likely at higher doses. Because of this, and at impairing judgment and sometimes coordination, you shouldn't drive or do anything dangerous when under the influence of psilocybin. It can also trigger underlying mental issues, especially in high doses, so those with a history of mental health problems should probably avoid them. Luckily, psilocybin has a very low toxicity and a relatively low harm potential, so reports of lethal doses of the drug are incredibly rare. And as with most illegal drugs, perhaps the most dangerous thing is getting caught with them, as possession, and especially distribution, of magic mushrooms can vary can carry very stiff penalties, including jail time. So that's all for the science of psilocybin, the psychoactive component of magic mushrooms. Next week, Rochelle will bring you the history of the drug, talking about when people started using it and how the laws and societal attitudes surrounding it have changed over time. Now it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. 
For today's episode, we're going to be doing something pretty new for us. Rather than focusing in on a particular issue, we're going to be looking at a particular place. And for this first one of these, it's going to be Rhode Island. And we're lucky to have as our guests Jared Moffat and Rebecca Nieves-McGoldrick, a political power couple who are working towards all sorts of incredible, incredible reforms in the ocean state. So Jared is the Rhode Island political director of the Marijuana Policy Project, and Rebecca is the executive director of Protect Families First. Thank you both for coming on. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having us. All right, so you both entered drug policy reform through SSDP, which our listeners do hear a lot about, but in case it's your first episode you're listening to, SSDP is Students for Sensible Drug Policy, a chapter-based nonprofit that Rochelle and I also came up through. So to give our listeners a bit of a better understanding of both of you, could you spend a minute or two just kind of talking about your background? Did you grow up in Rhode Island, or I know you both went to Brown University. Was that your introduction to the state? Yeah, yeah, we both, uh, we actually met, at Students for Sensible Drug Policy at Brown. Uh, I'm originally from Jackson, Mississippi, so uh, Southern mm-hmm. boy at heart, uh, but, you know, fell in love with, uh, with, with Rhode Island and uh, continued doing drug policy work after graduation, thanks to SSDP teaching me a lot of tools and uh, a lot of activism skills. And uh, I'm originally, I, say, I like to say bi-coastal, <laughs> from uh, New Jersey and California, uh, parents on two coasts, but have since made Rhode Island home after graduation and uh, decided to continue doing drug policy work after I graduated uh, through SDP. I was just kind of so taken by it and there were so many opportunities, so happy to be doing it this many years after. Awesome. And, and so what is it that made you uh, stick around in Rhode Island specifically afterwards? For you, Jared, was it just a lot more prospects for reform than Mississippi, I assume? Yeah, that, <laughs> uh, that, that was a big part of it. You know, We could do another episode on Mississippi. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I definitely saw more opportunities here. I mean, we, we worked on the campaign to decriminalize uh, possession of marijuana as students. And uh, doing that work allowed us to make a lot of connections and uh, sort of build a network here in Rhode Island. And I think what what sort of attracted us to doing drug policy work in Rhode Island is, uh, you you know, a lot of people will tell you it has a small town feel. And that's because it's easy to uh, get to know people. It's easy to sit down with the director of the Department of Corrections or, you know, meet with someone from the governor's staff. And and we found it very accessible here in a state with only a million people. We found that Uh, it was easy to sort of uh, coalesce a group of people that could work towards change. Absolutely. I think that that's my reason for staying as well. It was just (laughs) very accessible. When you look at a place like California, by comparison, it was just um, massive and seemed overwhelming. So um, happy to start here in Rhode Island, making some change with a million people. It's a little bite-sized state, so... And so this is actually a really interesting state to do drug policy reform work in. Um, A survey earlier this year actually found that Rhode Islanders use marijuana and other illegal drugs at the highest rate in the country, um, which I don't think probably most people are aware of. Do you have any insight to why that is? Is it a matter of demographics? Like, is the population particularly young and urban? Or are there other factors that might um, account for that? Rhode Island does seem to be an outlier compared to other New England states in a bunch of um, statistics on drug use. So we do have the highest illicit drug use rate um, for several substances in the country. Um, We also have one of the highest overdose death rates um, in the country. We're ranked number seven. Uh, And that's a huge outlier for the rest of New England. Other New England states come in like 13, 17. So... um, I, I am not sure there's any, you know, hard evidence of a causation of why we have such high drug use. I think, though, um, the demographics, especially the amount of poverty concentrated in Rhode Island, has something to do with it. Um, it is a much, much poorer state than the rest of New England. Uh, so median income in Providence um, is about, you know, 25000 for a household. So when you look at a place like Boston, oh, wow. that's a huge difference, or Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Connecticut. Um, so, I mean, that's one thing that I could say uh, might be attributed to why there is such high drug use. Yeah, another thing is uh, the rate of mental illness is pretty high in Rhode Island. I don't know if it's number one in the country per capita, but I know it's up there. 
And, you know, I mean, I think that uh, some people do, you know, self-medicate for mental illness with, with substance use. Um, but, you know, I think there's a fair amount of uh, just recreational marijuana use as well. And that, that certainly accounts for the bulk of the illicit drug use. Um, so, you know, I guess there's a lot of people here that, uh, that, that are fond of marijuana. <laughs> I think it also could be that, um, you know, for such a small population body of a million people in the state, a lot of that is also students. We have mm -hmm. big universities here, Brown, RISD, Johnson & Wales, URI. So there are quite a lot of universities um, for such a small state. So you have a much younger population on those campuses, um, especially driving use like marijuana. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because that was kind of my assumption going into this was that, you know, Brown especially has a reputation as kind of one of the crunchier colleges, at least on the East Coast. And so that's kind of what I had attributed it to. But I didn't realize the the level of poverty that there was in Rhode Island in comparison to, to other states in New England. I, that just hadn't really come across in its reputation. So that's interesting. And, and so how has this... Um, this high rate of drug use, both for, for marijuana and other drugs, informed your work and kind of how do you think that it's impacted you in, in your path to reform? Has it made people more open because drug use is a bit more normal there or are people more resistant because they've seen a lot of negative effects in their own lives? How, how do you think that's come across? Well, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I think, uh, you know, on, on something like the marijuana issue, uh, you know, having the highest number of per capita marijuana users in, in a state is something that, you know, we often point to and, and sort of say, look, like we've got a lot of our population turning to an illicit market. So it's something that, mm -hmm. you know, clearly uh, a lot of people in our state would benefit from a regulated, safer, uh, you know, regulated market. So that's something we sort of use to our advantage. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, opponents will point to, you know, things like our high overdose rate and say, you know, this is a reason we need to sort of crack down. Um, so I think in, in some ways it kind of works, it, it works both ways. Um, one thing I would say is, you know, with regards to uh, the overdose rate that we have here and also coupled with the educational institutions that we have, um, there's a lot of research being done in Rhode Island. So that often plays to our advantage having a lot of um, experts in these fields locally accessible. So the Brown Medical School, Brown School of Public Health, um, the URI uh, School of Pharmacology, um, they've all done phenomenal work um, nationally and internationally around these issues, and it's really nice to have them in our backyard. So. And so are they, are those institutions and the researchers at those universities, are they generally supportive and involved in the drug reform work that you do? Or do you see, you know, often, oftentimes we get the most resistance from the medical establishment who just aren't ready to move beyond the, the time-tested prohibitionist policies uh, that we're used to? I would say that I think folks in Rhode Island are pretty open-minded. Um, a lot of the medical folks that we work with um, are on the research end, so they're a little more open-minded than being practicing physicians. Um, that being said, though, we can't ignore the politics of Rhode Island. Um, being such a small state, it has its benefits that, you know, you can bring people to the table relatively quickly, but it also means that everyone kind of knows each other and their personal profiles are, you know, very public, and um, you can't really say things without the assurance that it's not going to go around. So that kind of can, you know, make people self-center their ideas in some ways. Yeah, I, I would sort of echo that and also say, um, sort of like the last question, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I know that one of the board members of Project Sam is, you know, from Rhode Island. Uh, but we also have Dr. David Lewis, who's the founder of Brown's Alcohol and Addiction Studies, who's on, you know, Protect Families First Board of Directors. He's on the board of uh, DPA. So you get a mixed bag. I mean, you've got some people that uh, have sort of made their career off of uh, sort of promoting prohibitionist policies and some people that have sort of made their impact by opposing the drug war. So you, you get a little bit of both. Yeah, and that is really interesting that you bring up all of, all of the researchers and the, the willingness to try new things there because I, I remember, I'm not even sure how long ago it is now, but that CVS was one of the first – or. Uh, Rhode Island was one of the first, if not the first, states where CVS uh, began to sell naloxone to anyone without a prescription. 
uh, rather than uh, requiring a doctor's prescription for it. And as we explained in a recent news segment, that's actually recently expanded to many more states. I think 17 was the, the newest wave of them. And so 14? Yeah, so 14 of them, and then in addition to a lot in between. And so how, how did this come about, uh, and how has it been working in the state so far? So what's really cool is that by being such a small state, we can have a lot of pilot programs launch here. And um, with, again, having the researchers available um, to conduct that research in this state, it's kind of a perfect opportunity. Um, so, yeah, Walgreens and CVS started uh, offering naloxone, uh, you know, without a prescription, basically, through a collaborative practice agreement that was passed um, in coordination with the Department of Health. And so that allows anyone to walk up to the pharmacy counter, ask for some naloxone, they fill out some paperwork at the counter, and can get it right then and there, which is phenomenal. So um, we've been doing stuff like that, and even there are some really awesome precursors to even the pharmacy model that happened in Rhode Island. We have one of the largest, you know, community-based naloxone distribution pro programs going on here, and that's been happening since 2006. Um, so people have been distributing intermuscular naloxone, um, you know, as people need it on the streets and uh, methadone clinics or, you know, needle exchanges, um, stuff like that. Um, another really exciting thing that we were able to roll out this year was starting to get naloxone released from the prison when people are leaving. So we run an overdose prevention training class at the prison facilities for people who are getting out and um, teach them about ways to reduce the risk of overdose, how to use naloxone, and they can sign up to get a free kit when they're leaving. So um, these are all things that happened, I think, because of having such a small state, having such a huge crisis of overdose, and having the body of information on how to best address this locally available. Yeah, I would just give uh, I would give some credit to Walgreens because I think they were actually before CVS, um, and they really stepped up to the plate. Oh, cool. um, and yeah, I would also just say that I think you know by the latest numbers we have. That has been a helpful program. The community distribution, I think, has, has done the bulk of the distribution, though. So we're really happy that our state has continued to allow um, community distribution, despite there being some potential red tape and, and bureaucratic sort of obstacles to that. Um, you know, as Rebecca said, because of the small state, we, we were able to sort of uh, work together and overcome something that might be more of, a, of an obstacle in other states. So, Rebecca, you mentioned uh, many initiatives, including the naloxone distribution to formerly incarcerated people exiting prison. Is that through your organi the organization you run, uh, Protect Families First, or is that through other initiatives you're working with? Yeah, so as Protect Families First, we collaborate with a group called PONY, which is Preventing Overdose Through Naloxone Intervention, and they actually are able to purchase the naloxone. Um, but when it's going through the prison, um, I'm the one who does the trainings, and then the prison technically is the one who is ordering their naloxone and giving it out. So um, it's kind of a partnership that we work with them on. Okay, so just to rewind for a second, um, can you explain to us a little bit more about your organization, Protect Families First? Like, what were the origins of it, and what kind of um, programs or initiatives do you engage in? Yep, so um, Protect Families First came out of some uh, work that we had done as students and wanted to continue doing after graduation. And really the goal was to say, um, you know, the war on drugs has been fought for over 40 years in the name of protecting young people and families. And we know that that just isn't true. Um, in fact, the war on drugs really hurts families through so many ways by preventing life-saving medications like naloxone from being in their hands or from incarcerating parents and taking them away from their children. Um, you know, the refugee crisis that we have at the border that is driven by international uh, drug violence or drug war violence, rather. And um, so we wanted to counter that narrative and say, actually, the war on drugs really hurts families and it hurts young people. So that's the, the basis of our, our organization. And through that, we've kind of taken on several initiatives that are um, politically important right now. Um, so one is working on uh, marijuana reform. 
So Rhode Island has a medical marijuana program. We also have decriminalized uh, possession of marijuana for under an ounce. Um, so the next logical step is let's regulate this. Let's take it, um, you know, out of the illicit market and put some controls on it. We've had several shootings in Providence that have uh, Providence and Cranston that, you know, have ended up in, you know, fatal shootings over, you know, small amounts of marijuana being dealt. Um, I think both shootings this year happened in school parking lots, in elementary school parking lots. So um, this is very real to a lot of people here. And um, so that's what we're doing around marijuana is helping to push for a, a regulated system for adult recreational use. Um, we also are doing a lot of work on overdose prevention um, as that has grown to be a huge problem across the country but it's affecting so many people here in Rhode Island. Um, it's by far the leading cause of accidental death. About two to three times more people are dying uh, from overdoses than are dying from motor vehicle accidents in our state. So it's really hard to, to find people in Rhode Island who haven't been affected by this issue. Um, you know, we'll meet people and it's just, it's heartbreaking to hear the stories. Um, several people we've known and uh, there's just a lot of movement around that to try and get to the bottom of this issue. We kind of stand in the role for the overdose prevention work as service providers and as advocates for people. Um, more on the, how would I say this? There's, there are a lot of people who are willing to put suggestions for overdose prevention on the table that are um, politically safe. And we kind of stand as the group that kind of wants to push the envelope, think outside of the box, and really get some real substantial reforms. The things that people are really afraid of at first, like safe injection facilities, um, we're the ones that are putting those ideas on the table. Um, and I think that that is a crucial role that people learn about what other places are doing and how successful they are, and looking at if it you know, is feasible to do at a municipal level here. Um, I mean, just for example, there's a, a little town here called Central Falls. It's only a square kilometer or square, sorry, a square mile, um, with a very, very small population. And, uh, they are having a huge problem with, uh, public, uh, injection drug use and syringes being left in parks. Um, so that's a big concern that they have. And they pulled us and some other stakeholders in to say, you know, what could be done about it? And while some of the suggestions were like, put more police presence in the park and stuff like that, we were quick to bring up, well, putting more police presence in the park just drives the injection drug use outside of the park and into other streets and other parts of the town. You know, you aren't getting rid of this. It drives it into the public restrooms of the Burger King or something like that. Um, and, you know, we hold their hand, you know, kind of to walk them to this crazy idea that... Maybe, just maybe, if you um, provide, you know, some medical oversight to people, you could prevent overdoses and make sure that the syringes are properly disposed of. Um, and clean syringes are used every time. So um, mm -hmm. it's things like that that we, are, we kind of serve that function here in Rhode Island. And um, another one of our big initiatives right now is working on uh, reforming youth drug education in the state. So, uh, you know, the D.A.R.E. program is still... Well, they don't like to call it the D.A.R.E. program now when you ask, oh, are you, you know, when we tell them you're still using Just Say No, they say, no, we teach children refusal techniques. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's just another way of saying Just Say No. Oh, my but, God. Uh, so we've been holding some public forums to talk to parents and talk to school officials about alternative uh drug education programs that actually surprisingly don't even focus on drugs, that it's way more holistic and basic than that. It's about teaching kids healthy lifestyles, how to respect their, you know, bodies, minds, everything. You know, it's, I, I think it's a confusing message when you say, don't do drugs, but let's go get some fast food for dinner. Um, don't do drugs, but stay up really late and don't get any sleep to study for a test. Um, so we need to be teaching kids a bunch of things, stress management, healthy diets, exercise, all of those things. And that's what we're talking to parents about. Yeah. And just to add on to that, because, um, you know, when, when Rebecca and I, and, and there was a third person that, that helped us form Protect Families First initially, um, you know, the, the reason we chose the name Protect Families First, uh, even though it strikes some people as a funny name for, for a drug policy organization was, it was based on some research that we did as students uh, from 2011 to 2012, where we basically looked at 
um, messaging techniques for uh, pro-reform groups and anti-reform groups. And then we also had a third group we called Neutral, which is like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, like how is the mainstream press talking about drug policy issues? And we essentially, I won't go through all the details, but we found a way to measure how much each side was talking about different topics. And one of the big topics we were looking oh, at was cool. family and youth-oriented rhetoric. And our hypothesis was, you know, we're probably, as the reform group, we're probably getting creamed by the opposition in terms of how much we talk about families, young people, children. And what we were sort of arguing in that research and report that, that eventually came out was, as reformers, we need to be reclaiming the rhetoric of families. We need to be casting ourselves as, as pro-family and using family values as a, part of our, as, as a part of our messaging. We looked at the marriage equality movement and the gay rights uh, efforts and saw that similar evolution that once they um, sort of reached a critical mass, they, they made a strategic decision to uh, orient their rhetoric around things like love and marriage and family. And that's, you know, I think has a big part of the re is a big part of the reason why now marriage equality is sort of a more mainstream, uh, pretty widely accepted issue. And, you know, we tried to say to people like DPA and MPP and a lot of other organizations out there, um, you know, because what we found was we were right. Our hypothesis was correct. Uh, opposition uh, groups were using family and youth oriented rhetoric at about 11 times the, the, the rate that wow. pro-reform mm -hmm. groups were using it. So you know, what we were saying is, you know, people don't really, you know, at home, they don't sit there and weigh all the, the numbers and, and sort of a utilitarian calculus of, okay, this many people are going to prison and this is how much we're spending. And no, they, they sort of, you know, they hear things like family and children. And those are emotional words that sort of grip people. And unfortunately, even though all of the arguments uh, in favor of, you know, families and young people were on our side, we just weren't saying it enough. So mm -hmm. we tried to sort of uh, come up with a way to frame all of these issues in a way that would be pro-family. And, you know, when you actually put that into practice, it gets a little messy. And, uh, you know, we've done our best to do that. And I think we've had a lot of success, though, because uh, that's sort of where we come at the issue from. And we have, you know, parents on our board of directors who can, very, who can speak very movingly and powerfully from that perspective. Mm hmm I think that is just so important to have an organization like that within the larger drug policy reform movement, because I feel like, I mean, a lot of the times reformers will make jokes and stuff about how everyone's saying like, oh, with a Simpsons meme of won't someone think of the children with them using this as their justification for for continuing prohibition. But it is, I mean, it's totally true that there are far more parents in this country than there are, you know, people who are libertarians who think you should be able to have a autonomy over your own body or, or people who are approaching this from some other issue or, or from some different angles. So being able to reclaim some of that that side of the messaging rather than simply kind of giving that up and focusing on other things and too much on data is, is incredibly important. What it comes down to is really just like making sure that we, sh you know, when we, sh we all share the same values that we don't want kids to, you know, be harmed. But when you actually look at it, the drug war is really hurting kids. So mm -hmm. as long as you share that value, um, I think that that's a good starting line to have a more productive conversation with people who are on the fence or don't quite understand where reformers are coming from. Yeah. And, and so that's all fantastic. But to shift gears for a little bit, because I do want to touch on it before we uh, before we wrap up. Uh, so Jared, uh, you and I recently spoke on a panel together at the, the National Cannabis Industry Association's recent conference in New York City. And you were talking about your efforts to pass a bill in the legislature to legalize the marijuana for adult use, which would be the first time uh, such a law was ever passed legislatively instead of through a ballot initiative in the in the five or four states and plus DC where it's already already law. So what what makes you think that Rhode Island's uh, could be the first state to do this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things a lot of things going in our favor. Uh, one is that there's a ton of public support. So we had a poll commissioned in April of this year showing 57 percent of voters in the state support it. Uh, we have a, uh, a few years that we've been pushing this legislation. So this will be, uh, I believe, our fifth year in 2016 that we've introduced legislation. So it's something that's familiar to legislators. It's something that we've been lobbying and pushing for for many years now. And we have a really awesome coalition of people that, that are a part of our team. So, you know, people from the medical community, former law enforcement, um, you know, criminal defense lawyers, 
um, all sorts of people that have you know spoken out. Um, and you know, we also feel that within the uh, both chambers of the legislature, that the rank and file members are behind this. And so, uh, you know, there is a challenge, and the challenge is convincing leadership in both chambers uh, to really take this up and make this you know something that they look at. Um, and, and that is a challenge because you know a lot of politicians, as we see not just in Rhode Island but across the country, are sort of afraid to be uh, linked uh, as being you know the marijuana guy or the marijuana you know Senate president or something like that. And so it's about overcoming that that concern about you know making sure that they understand why this is a, a good decision for the state. And ultimately, we feel like we have a good chance because our neighbors in Massachusetts. Uh, are, are very quickly moving towards uh, their ballot initiative in 2016. And Rhode Island has uh, sort of a complex uh, when it comes to Massachusetts where, you know, we get very jealous <laughs> when Massachusetts <laughs> does something first. Uh, we saw this, for example, with gambling revenue, which, you know, now legislators are very afraid that uh, Massachusetts is going to, you know, gobble up uh, all, of, all of the gambling revenue. And so we draw that parallel to, to marijuana reform. You know, we say, look, this is going to happen. Uh, it's, it's inevitable. And so would you rather have Massachusetts do it first and have all the <laughs> revenue and all those jobs and all that investment into the economy go, you know, just north of the border there? Or would you, wanna, would you rather do it here first so that we can take advantage of, of being the first early adopter in the region? So, you know, for all those reasons, uh, we feel like we, we are in a very good position in the 2016 legislative session. Uh, not to say it's guaranteed by any means, but we do feel like there's a lot of wind in our sails. So this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about Rhode Island being a smaller state and therefore an easy place to run a pilot type program. Um, I think Rhode Island might be the only state in which the marijuana policy project has a dedicated legislative staffer working on a marijuana um, reform initiative. So do you think does that all contribute to it being easier to lobby in a small state? I know you've already talked about like the coalition you're able to build. Yeah, I think what makes lobbying easier in Rhode Island is um, I'm able to meet a lot of different people from different parts of the state, and I can sort of mobilize different people to contact their legislators. Um, you know, Rebecca made the example of California earlier. I wouldn't even know where to begin in a state that big. Whereas in Rhode Island, uh, you know, if I don't know someone, I probably know someone who knows that person. And so uh, the network that I have sort of allows me to, uh, you know, round up people in different parts of the state. And in the sense of uh, getting constituents to contact their legislators, Rhode Island is, is a lot easier to do that. So that's the primary sort of, you know, lever of influence that we have over the legislature is constituent support. And I think we've been pretty effective in, in mobilizing people to, to do that. So, of course, we also have, you know, lobbyists working here sort of directly with uh, the legislators. And, and they've been very helpful in, in, in sort of complementing our, our grassroots effort. Um, but, yeah, I, I think Rhode Island is, again, a place where you can bring a lot of people to the table pretty easily. Uh, people are, are pretty accessible. And, and that does make it, in some ways, easier to lobby. Also, quickly, I think what in my experience is kind of unique about Rhode Island is that it um, people here are very um, politically engaged about state politics, more so than I've experienced in either New Jersey or California, where um, if people are politically engaged, it's mostly at the national level that they're paying attention to politics. Here, there's a lot of local talk. Um, so people kind of hear what's going on at the state house. It's a very regular thing in conversations. Um, so I think that's easier to just mobilize people to contact their legislators, things like that. So you, you mentioned like a, a complex or rivalry with Massachusetts as one of the main motivators. But there's another small state right near you that actually has the uh, first and maybe only legislative chamber that's ever voted in favor of legalization, which I believe is Vermont, right? Uh, New Hampshire, actually. New Hampshire. I knew I was going to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, New Hampshire has this obstinate, you know, governor and, and the Senate's not doing great, but their, their House of Representatives sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, which is huge. It's, it's the largest <laughs> house, uh, house of Representatives place. of any mm -hmm. state in the country. And I think there's something like 400 uh, members of that chamber. I think there's actually more people in the uh, New Hampshire House than in the National House of Representatives. 
which is just insane. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Vermont is also, uh, you know, as, as many listeners will probably know, is, is also very close to passing legalization through the state legislature. Um, unlike Rhode Island, uh, they do have the support, uh, open vocal support of their Speaker of the House, and their governor has also, uh, you know, vowed to push for tax and regulate legislation in 2016. So, you know, the race is on, uh, and, and that's something that we are making our legislators here very aware of, that, you know, we only have a limited window of time before we can, can you know, before we can be the first, and uh, there's a lot at stake when it comes to that. Uh, we, we are quick to remind um, our legislators here that, uh, you know, whichever state in New England or on the East Coast goes first, that, that's going to see the heaviest investment um, from these businesses, and that's going to see the, the greatest amount of tax revenue, um, not just you know from tourists, but again because the the industry is sort of has a ground floor to stand on, and that means more jobs as well. So you know we're, we're trying to communicate that you know Massachusetts, Vermont, and Maine is also going to have a ballot initiative in 2016 that that could pass as well. So mm-hmm. you know we've got to get moving pretty quickly here uh, if we want to you know we want to be on the ground floor. And I think mm-hmm. one thing that's worth mentioning too is um, you know Rhode Island was one of two states that never passed that never ratified. Um, the prohibition, alcohol prohibition amendment, and oh, yeah. good job. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so it's like we rejected this form of prohibition. Now let's reject uh, this one. Um, mm-hmm. And you know that's something that we also kind of play to you try to use to our advantage. Is there's kind of an independent streak, a sort of um, you know most voters here in Rhode Island are registered as independents, and there's sort of this you know we're going to do it our own way type of mentality. And, uh, you know, we, we try to play on that and say, you know, look, like, let's take, let's seize this opportunity. Let's be leaders. And uh, it can be something that we're proud of as a state. The Massachusetts residents, I, I, there's a small part of me that hopes that we're the first in the Northeast to do it. But it is absolutely the more the merrier. So I, I would both wish you both the best of luck in this campaign. And I would love to see Rhode Island beat us to it. <laughs> yeah, when you said it, it was a rivalry earlier, you know, I, I don't know if Massachusetts would see it as much as a rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I I, I yeah. framed it as complex slash rivalry. I thought I'd, you know, give the benefit of the doubt to Rhode Island. <laughs> Certainly a complex. <laughs> <laughs> but we also, uh, you know, I kind of joke with people that it would put Rhode Island on the map as we were traveling on the West Coast this summer. A lot of people ask, you know, when they saw Rhode Island IDs, like, uh, where is that? Is that like a territory or something? So, oh, oh no. <laughs> so that's a part of New York. So, you know, this could also make the news and put us on the map. Rhode Island, not Long Island, guys. <laughs> that's great. Well, definitely best of luck with this campaign. And I mean, this may be a, a perfect opportunity right here because so we actually always wrap up all of our discussions with a call to action, uh, because while we love talking about these issues and uh, and spreading the word, in the end, it's, it's kind of useless if we're not then translating that into making actual policy change and, and improving our laws. So uh, we always ask our, our guests to say one thing that they would like our listeners to do right now. Uh, so if you could each tell our listeners, what is one thing that you uh, would really like our listeners to take action on to, to move the ball forward a little bit? Um, well, it'd be great if everyone could go and like Regulate Rhode Island on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't say that. Uh, if anyone you know has relatives in Rhode Island or uh, or around you know New England, uh, we're always looking for help. Uh, and particularly if there are any sort of uh, cannabis businesses, uh, you know, people who run those in, in the audience, uh, we are we're looking for help from from those folks as well to uh, to help us do some lobbying work. I think I would echo what Jared's saying. Um, you know, follow us on social media. That's where we post most updates and action alerts. Follow who? Um, protect families first. Go like it <laughs> online. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where we'll post action alerts during the legislative session. So it's really easy things like pick up the phone or send in a letter or come to the state house with us. Um, those are the big things. And what one big law that um, Protect Families First is going to be working on is Getting our Good Samaritan law back because we lost it. Rhode Island no longer. Oh, no. We no longer have. Oh, a I didn't realize I wish we that. had time to talk about that. <laughs> we were the we were the sixth state to get one and the first state to lose it. So um, we'll be pushing for that in a legislative session and um, would love any help. So yep, online is where we'll keep all the updates. 
Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for coming on and speaking with us today. This has been Rebecca Nieves McGoldrick with Protect Families First and Jared Moffitt, the Rhode Island Political Director for the Marijuana Policy Project. Thanks to you both. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 14 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and we'd like to thank Jared Moffitt and Rebecca Nieves McGoldrick once again for joining us for the discussion. Be sure to tune in next week for our usual rundown of the news, the history of psilocybin, and a friendly debate on the controversial campaign to legalize marijuana in Ohio. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show, links to our news stories and guests, and much more. Remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week.